Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King. Today we're going to talk about the advancing gospel from Acts chapter 8, the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen, and some very exciting things are going to happen right immediately after the stoning of Stephen and right after the uh, disciples begin to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be talking about Philip and taking his trip to Samaria to preach the gospel. And a little background on the Samaritans, some things you need to know before we get into this passage, is that they were half-breed Israelite, that is, uh, half-breed Jewish folk uh, that were brought about by the kingdom split way back in the Old Testament. The kingdom of Israel split into a northern and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom... Uh, maintained the name Judah and had their capital of Jerusalem. So they had the temple. The northern kingdom did not have the benefit of this temple and Jerusalem. They retained the name Israel, or sometimes as they're called in the Old Testament, Ephraim. And in about uh, 722 BC, they were destroyed by the and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire took a bunch of those people that lived there, took them out of there, scattered them across the Assyrian Empire, and then brought a bunch of strangers from various parts of the Assyrian Empire, other territories they had conquered, settled them in that land that used to be known as the Northern Kingdom Israel, uh, and settled the people in there. Now, the Northern Kingdom had its capital in Samaria, the city of Samaria. Uh, but afterwards, some centuries later, that whole area became known as simply Samaria. And of course, the people there were Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans, because they did not have the temple, they did not have the benefit of the full uh, Levitical priesthood that was provided to the nation Israel, they had their own version of Israelite history. And they even had their own version of the Bible, uh, just the first five books, the books of Moses, but they were somewhat different from the exact books that the southern kingdom retained, the ones that were handed down from Moses and indeed are our word of God to this day. And they had their own temple for worshiping on Mount Gerizim. If you recall John chapter 4, John goes through the region of Samaria and he uh, ministers to a woman there and speaks with her and she even refers to that you know she says we worship on the mountain here you jews say it's supposed to be in jerusalem and jesus says something very interesting to her that sets this up in john chapter 4 verses 21 and 22 jesus says to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so very interestingly, uh, in a religious argument, in a, very, uh, in a way that would be totally unacceptable today, he just outright shuts her down and just says, no, y'all aren't worshiping the right God. You don't know what you're worshiping. We know what we're worshiping, speaking as a Jew. Uh, he says, we know what we worship. Salvation is from the Jews. So... That's the first thing we need to know is this background of the Samaritans. Now, this is why they were despised by the Jewish people, that they had this uh, distorted religion, that they were half-breeds, that they weren't, they didn't consider them to be the covenant people, considered them to be an insult. So the second thing we need to know about this context of what we're studying here in Acts chapter 8 is connection to the previous verses. As we as we studied last time in 
Acts chapters 6 and 7. Stephen uh, stood up, boldly proclaimed the truth to the leaders of Israel. They took him out of the council chambers outside the city and stoned him to death. And that's where we pick up the action in chapter 8. Persecution then begins. It seems to spark a lot more resistance to the believers and to the gospel by the Jewish authorities, and much more persecution breaks out. And so many people leave Jerusalem, many of the believers, but they don't just leave it passively. They don't just go and hide somewhere. They go and preach the gospel. That's where we're going to pick it up as we read together in Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 1. We're going to go through verse 25. It says this right there. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, that is the execution of Stephen. And we'll meet Saul later. Uh, many of you know him as Paul. And he'll have a dramatic experience in chapter 9. But here he approves of the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many of them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God, God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them, with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, let's begin our study with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day, and we thank you for this account of your servant Philip, of the great things that you brought to the Samaritan people. 
And Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for it. And Lord, we anticipate that today, like you did then, with the power of your Holy Spirit, you will bring great things to us as we explore your word with open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there you have it. Uh, very interesting account. Philip goes there. There are some amazing things. We see that the gospel is advancing, but we do see that it meets some resistance. And so what I want to do is I want to reveal a little bit of this, a bit at a time, and I want to talk about the advance of the gospel. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which Luke uses a sta this statement of Jesus to kind of outline his book, the way it's going to go. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so Luke uses that as an outline, and that's exactly how the book unfolds, is that it begins with all the action in Jerusalem, and then it continues, then the gospel begins to spread, and we see it here in chapter 8. The persecution is part of what's causing it to spread more, and it spreads the surrounding area, which would be Judea, and it spreads to Samaria, and then in chapter 10, we're going to see it really going outside the bounds of Israel to uh, begin to encompass the ends of the earth. So the uh, outline is a general trend. It's not a rigid rule. Many had already gone out from Pentecost. When we studied Acts chapter 2, we saw that there were people from all over the world in Jerusalem for this holiday to celebrate it together. And many of those, having believed the gospel, would have returned to their homes. Now, it's also very clear many of them stayed, but some would have returned in order to be with their families, to be uh, back where their vocation was and everything else, and they took this gospel truth with them. This is why it is when we read the rest of the book of Acts, we find the apostles and others running into other believers well outside the, uh, the borders of Israel. And so it's uh, amazing. In fact, in chapter 9, what we'll see is we'll see there's a significant amount of believers in the city of Damascus, so much so that uh, Saul gets orders that he can go up there and round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem to answer for what they've been doing. And so there's obviously a, a good bit of people spreading the good news outside the city of Jerusalem. We also want, don't want to think that this persecution is the only reason the gospel left Jerusalem. It's not like Jesus was saying, hey, y'all got to go to Samaria now, go to Samaria now. And they were disobeying him and then he sent persecution to drive them away from the city. It's not at all. It was very natural how it kind of unfolded. They had plenty of more opportunity within Jerusalem itself to spread the gospel. Many, many thousands of people in Jerusalem who had not yet responded to the message. They could have continued to minister there a great deal of time. But nevertheless, this persecution comes, and it is on that occasion they say, okay, eh, let's, let's take us out of town. We'll go preach a gospel up the road. And so they, uh, so they did. Nevertheless, as Jesus predicted, here is this wave coming out of Jerusalem. It's just like he was, uh, just like he was saying would happen. And as sure as they were standing in Samaria those days and preaching the good news, someday they'd be standing in the uttermost parts of the earth. And indeed, there they are. You go all over the planet and, and in almost every nation, you will find that the gospel message has been there, that people have believed, that you'll find believers of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language virtually on the planet. And it continues to move to this day. 
And so we see whether the end of the earth for you is, is Carrollton, Kentucky, where I am, or is uh, some, some other location where you are found, the gospel's gone there and might be going there right now this minute as I preach it. So the question that remains is how did they exactly go about this? Uh, did they... Uh, did they say, okay, let's instead, there's trouble at Jerusalem, let's move to Samaria and settle down and get ourselves a home, get ourselves a job, get ourselves established, get ourselves a gym membership so we can meet people and build relationships with people. And eventually when we're comfortable, we'll share the gospel with them. <laughs> That's not what happened here. That's not a biblical model of evangelism. Now, can it happen that way? Yeah, it absolutely can. But the first and foremost thing is that the gospel be preached. And that's exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 8 and about verse, well, let's see, about verse 4. Those who went about scattered, preaching the word. And Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention. So here he is preaching to the crowds. He goes to Samaria. He doesn't take time to get to know everybody. He doesn't put down roots or anything. He gets there. He starts preaching the gospel. He starts telling the good news about Jesus Christ. And people believed and lives were changed. And there was much joy, as it says in verse 8, because people were being moved from death to life. The burden of sin and guilt was being lifted up off of them. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit and encouraged incredibly. So the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is actively invading the earth. That's how you have to look at that. This is the advance of the gospel. You may not see it all the time, it might not feel like it's happening in your area. The church may appear to be stagnant to you, but understand the gospel is always advancing somewhere or some time. If it's stagnant where you are, just get involved and start to proclaim the word of truth and it will begin to advance and, and there will become a, this wave of, of advancement of the kingdom. It comes around generation to generation, place to place. Don't get down. Some places can be very dark right now. Some places in the world are extremely challenging to bring forth the gospel because the culture is hostile to it or the people are not receptive to it because it's got all kinds of, of negative connotations with it. It's earned a poor reputation or whatever because of the unfaithfulness of some churches. We do indeed live in a time where every negative description of humanity that we can find in the New Testament seems to be being fulfilled. There's rumors of war, there's plots, there's lies, there's dissension among people and division among people. There's a despising of life that goes on in the world now. But don't fret, the kingdom advances. Jesus is reaping a harvest from unlikely people like these Samaritans, like these Kentuckians, like you Georgians or whoever else is receiving this gospel. This is the advance of the gospel, and it continues, and it bears fruit. I want to point out something to you that you might not know, and it's a spoiler alert because we're going through the book of Acts, and, and I'm going to talk about the ending. But, of course, you can turn there at any time and see what the ending is. Sometimes it's beneficial. Here's the end of the book of Acts, and it ends with Paul in Rome, imprisoned and awaiting his trial, 
And here's what it says. It says he lived there two whole years at his own expense. So he's imprisoned, but he's got to pay for his housing. It's kind of interesting. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. Now, it just ends there. And the shocking thing about this, and this is very encouraging from the perspective of studying the Word of God and people wondering, did we get the right Word of God? Did we get the right books? Did we get it all? Is it original? Is it is it reliable? Is this exactly what God wanted us to have? Well, let me show you that it is through this one piece of evidence here at the ending of the book of Acts. A couple years after Luke wrote the book of Acts, a couple years after this ending here, the Apostle Paul died. He was executed by the Romans. Now, this particular time he's in prison, accounted at the end of the book of Acts, he is released and he goes to minister some more, but then he's arrested once again and he's brought to Rome. And this time the, the verdict is off with his head. And so indeed, Paul is executed just a couple years after. Now, my question for you is, you're in a church, you're copying the book of Acts, and you're looking at the book of Acts, and you're thinking, you know, Paul was just executed. That's probably a really important thing. That really wraps up the book of Acts. Why don't we write that down? But they didn't. Why didn't they? Well, because they had too much respect for what they already recognized was the Word of God. They already understood these things to be inspired, and they were faithful to copy them correctly and not to alter them. In these, in these great ways like adding an ending to the book of Acts. It's a book without an ending. The other ending it could have is this, a few years after that, you know, so about 10 years, uh, maybe eight years after the writing of the book of Acts, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. There was a great war and a siege of the city of Jerusalem and, and the Romans came in and the temple was burned, destroyed, fulfilling what Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. That's a major thing that Jesus said. And that would be a major awesome ending to the book of Acts because it was very clear that the Jews were being offered the gospel, that they were rejecting it. By and large, many thousands came to believe, but the leadership was rejecting it, and it was becoming clear that their time was fading and the Christian gospel was spreading all around the world like crazy. A perfect ending would be, see now, even your temple's gone. Your entire religious system is gone because it was fulfilled in Jesus. This would be the ultimate I told you so for the Christian people, but it's not added. It happened in 70 AD. It's a historical fact. We know it happened. The evidence is still there that it happened. And yet, it was never added to the book of Acts. Why? Because God wanted to end it this way. God wanted it to end as something that was continuing on, something that was continuing to this very day. It outlived Paul. It outlived the destruction of the temple. It outlived all the people that wrote all these things and did all these things and all these people accounted for in the book of Acts. They all passed away, but the gospel continued to move forward in the same way it did in the book of Acts and the same way it does to this very day. So why isn't there an ending to the book of Acts? Because it's not over yet. You're in it right now. I'm in it right now as I proclaim this gospel of truth and people respond to the gospel of truth and the kingdom of God is advanced. It is still happening to this day. 
And so that gives us a couple of tremendous encouragements, understanding the advance of the gospel. And the first encouragement is this, you are in the hands of God to bear fruit. In other words, God has seen to it that in his hands, he is going to continue to push forth the gospel message. And despite the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem, the gospel message went forward into the surrounding areas. And he is doing the same thing today. Uh, nobody's responding in your family, go outside your family. Nobody's responding in your community, go outside your community. But if it is necessary, go. And as you go, preach the word of God, preach the truth. People will respond. Some will believe, some will reject, some will despise you but some will believe you are in the hands of God to bear fruit and taking this gospel message forth, it will bear fruit. This is a promise of God that his word will accomplish what he desires it to accomplish. And he'll do it through his people, the church. What a tremendous encouragement. A second encouragement is this, the gospel is freely offered to everyone. Yes, even the Samaritans, generation after generation, in Samaria. They suffered from a wicked leadership, and you can read about it in the Old Testament. And many of the people acting wickedly, refusing the invitation to worship in Jerusalem, even when they had the opportunity, when the northern king or southern kingdom reached out and said, why don't you guys come over here and worship with us at Jerusalem? Most did not respond, but a few did. As God has always shown us, there will always be a few who will. But even Jesus got some rejection out of Samaria. As he told the disciples, he said, I'll go into the town, prepare for my coming. And as the disciples went in, hey, Jesus is coming. The town's response was, no, we don't want him. We don't want his message or anything else. And the disciples come back to Jesus with that. And uh, they say, hey, do you want us to call down fire on him? <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, we're not going to do that. But there was another time he went in John chapter 4, and it bore much fruit. He spoke to a woman at the well, and she went into the city and proclaimed, could this be the Christ? He, he knew everything I'd ever done, yet he spoke to me anyway, and, and could this be him? And many people came out of the city to find out, and there was great joy. So the gospel is freely offered to everyone because the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were second-rate Israelites at best. They were considered by many Jews even worse than the Gentiles, that is, worse than the non-Jews. But nevertheless, the gospel goes to them, brought to them by someone from Jerusalem. Now later, it's going to become crystal clear in the book of Acts that the the gospel is going wholesale to all the Gentiles. It is moving out from even people that have no Jewish connection whatsoever. The gospel is going to go to them and many will believe and they will become part of this new nation God is building called the church. There is no depth of sin, no distance of mileage, no condition of heart that cannot be overcome by the Spirit of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here we have Luke's uh, Luke's book of Acts without an ending because the story continues. But the story is facing resistance and it's facing resistance all the time. We see resistance here in the book of Acts. In chapter 8, we meet a guy named Simon called Megas or Great. And Simon, who's introduced um, first in, in verse 9, this guy Simon, let me, let me get that up there for you. 
I wanted to be able to tell you that this guy truly believed and turned from his satanic lying signs and his witchcraft and, and wonders that he was performing to the living God. But I can't tell you that because the passage doesn't really bear it out. He was performing magic previously prior to the gospel coming. And we don't know if he had stopped doing that, if it continued uh, until they got there to preach the gospel. I'm not sure. But Acts chapter 8, verse 13 says that he believed. Now the question comes to us then, what did he believe? There's no account of his repentance, though he was clearly baptized. And then he even continued with Philip, seeming to be doing the work of the gospel. But then in verse 14, Peter and John come. They lay hands on the believers, and the believers receive the Holy Spirit. And this gets Simon's attention. He makes an inappropriate request. He offers money for the gift of giving the Holy Spirit of God. And this is amazing and offensive to Peter. And the, the thing that I think in reading this is, well, maybe this is just a rookie mistake. Maybe he just, he's just young in his faith. He doesn't quite understand these things. He just needs time to grow. And, and maybe eventually he did. But we look at Peter's rebuke in verses 20 to 23, and we see that he has very, very harsh words for this man. Peter says several things that make me doubt Simon's salvation. Let me show them to you. First of all, in verse 21, you'll notice he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. In other words, you have no inheritance here. You have no right here. He says, your heart is not right before God. And this is a pretty serious charge when you understand what the New Testament says about heart and what the New Testament says about being right with God. And he goes on, he says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And so he says, this is wickedness that he is involved in. And he goes, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So the intent in his very heart was evil on this issue. The Holy Spirit revealed this to Peter. He knew that his intention was bad. If his intention had been, if I had this gift, we could spread the gospel more and more people would be saved, that would be one thing. But it's revealed to Peter and shown to him his intention was wrong. Something in his heart, he was looking at this for some kind of a personal gain. And he says, I perceive he says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. In other words, he is in a bad, bad place. He is a slave still to sin. And the Bible makes it clear in the book of Romans, Paul speaks about it, that we are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to God. And here Peter implies this man is still a slave to sin. Now, those are all very convincing, the way Peter describes this man, the way he rebukes this man is very harsh. But the final thing for me that really convinced me that Simon wasn't even saved is what he says in verse 24. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That does it for me. Why? Because Christianity 101 is this, you pray for you. And it's perfectly appropriate, and indeed you should constantly be asking others to pray for you. 
But the number one thing and the first thing one ought to do is pray to God himself. He should have, had he been a true believer, had he had the Spirit of God, surely it would have driven him to his knees to cry out to the Lord himself for repentance. But he didn't. He said, you pray for me. And then look at the last part of his request. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. In other words, he wasn't concerned that he had offended the Lord, that he had sinned against the Lord. His primary concern was the consequences. He didn't want God to do something to him for it. But if you're in relationship with somebody and you have wronged that person, your primary concern uh, because of your love for them is the pain that you've caused them is the division that you've done to your relationship. It's a damage that you've done there. It's not what will the consequences be. Yeah, there might be consequences, but that should be the secondary thing. If this man truly loved God, he would be most hurt that he had hurt God. All these clues together convince me that this man was not a true believer. The response shows he had this superstitious view, a pagan view of God, like this gift is something that can be given by somebody else and that therefore, you know, the, the gift is just given by means of money. It's a very superstitious kind of way of thinking. This is superstition along the line of the Christian who believes that if they do X, Y, and Z, God will give them A and B. This is a very superstitious way of looking at it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have a misconception, you've done something wrong, you can go directly to God about it. And you should take someone else with you. You should bring someone else in on it and say, look, this is what I've done. Can we pray together about this? But you yourself, you can and you will pray if indeed you've sinned against God. So he's got a very weak faith. If it's a faith at all, I believe it not to be. And before this, you look at the clues were here earlier. Look at verse 13. When he believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. See, when the gospel comes, it brings joy. When the gospel comes, it, it does bring some amazement with it, but that seems to be his thing. In other words, he's there for the excitement. This is called sensuality. He just wants to see exciting things happen. He wants to see signs and wonders. He wants to see people amazed. And these are all fleshly concerns. These are all concerns of somebody whose priority is satisfying some kind of internal desire. And this is the description of unbelievers given in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul describes to the church, hey, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were just following along with the world. You were trying to fulfill the desires of the body and the mind. Now, in the church, we often do many things that can satisfy desires of the body and of the mind. And sometimes people come around just simply for those purposes. And he had been very close to Philip. He had been there when Peter and John came along, but he was not a believer. What would have happened if this attitude in him had not been called out by Peter and Peter and John went back to Jerusalem and Philip moved on to preach the gospel elsewhere? What might he have done to the church? What kind of damage might that have caused? Could have been severe. In the book of Matthew, Jesus gives a parable. And he gives a parable of a sower, a, a farmer, sowing good seed in a field. And some of that seed comes up and indeed is good, bears good fruit. But among the seed, the evil one comes and plants tares or weeds in among it. 
And this is the resistance to the local church. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. In other words, the seed, which is the word of God, which he explains elsewhere, the seed is good seed. And what springs up from that seed genuinely is good, but the evil one's going to come along and he's going to sow in weeds along with it. And so it is with the church. Wherever you find a gathering of believers together, there will be some of Satan's among them who have been planted there to disrupt, to distract, to derail the gospel. So did Simon ever repent of this? I don't know. But this is the resistance to the work of the church. But I want you to notice it goes on, and that's our encouragement in this section. The resistance is irrelevant. The word of God goes on. It's called out. Simon see, or Peter sees it, and Simon is called out on this, and, and it seems to be public that others would have noticed as well. And so this continues on. And this is a theme, a major theme in the book of Acts, is the church overcoming obstacles. It overcomes attacks from outside. It overcomes resistance and difficulty and division inside. It's overcoming both all the time. The resistance is almost irrelevant to the spread of the gospel. In fact, as we saw in Jerusalem, the resistance to the gospel actually caused it to spread more. And so this is the exciting thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is the resistance to it is irrelevant. God is even going to use that against the devil to spread the gospel even more. There's always a witness to the gospel. And we can speak to the resistance, and we should, and we can refute the resistance to the gospel, and we should, and we should resist the resistance to the gospel. And we do. But our hope is in Jesus Christ, who said, I will build my church, and he is building it with and without resistance. And so this is an amazing thing that we see this resistance here. Now, the next thing we see is there's some reinforcements that come. I couldn't resist another R. Reinforcements come from Jerusalem in the form of Peter and John. The believers at Samaria had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And this is something that's very interesting because if we take a look at the passage here, we see that they believed and then they were baptized. But it's not until the apostles come and pray for them and lay hands on them that they actually received the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why in the book of Acts, we have to be very careful about making rules for the church from a historical account. Some will say, well, this is how the Spirit comes upon people. You must pray for them and lay hands on them, and that will bring the Holy Spirit of God. But we have to be careful because there are contradictions to doing this. Indeed, that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 8. But if we go to Acts chapter 2, some say this is the pattern. Because Peter says in response to the question, what shall we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then they say, well, see, that's clearly the order. You repent, then you're baptized, then you receive the Holy Spirit of God. But we do realize Peter's just answering a question here, right? And the question's answered by the first half of the verse. They say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So those are the imperatives. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not answering the question. That's adding more. He's saying, this, by the way, also is going to happen. And so Peter had 
preached to the crowd. He told them to repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit. But he's not making an absolute chronology of it. He's simply answering a question. But then we go to Acts chapter 10. Peter's preaching to the Gentiles. He actually goes into a Gentile home, which was against the rules. We'll talk all about that later. But he is compelled by the Spirit to do it. He goes into their home. He preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Then they get baptized. And so there we have a problem that first they hear the word of God, then they receive the spirit, then comes the baptism. So now it's out of order from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8. And so when people try to make rules, what you're going to end up with is you're going to end up with contradiction and confusion. God can save people how he wants to save people. And when he times the Holy Spirit and when they have occasion to get baptized will vary from time to time. The question that has to remain is why did God do it this particular way in Samaria at this time? Well, I think it's very clear uh, what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he was in Samaria speaking to a Samaritan and said plainly, salvation is from the Jews. If anyone needed to know that, even more so than the Gentiles, would be the Samaritans. He was making a clear statement that their ways were wrong, that they were in error, that their ways were false. The true Messiah, Jesus the Christ, would come from the Jews and come from Jerusalem. The Holy Scriptures that were the true Scriptures that were used by the leaders in Jerusalem at that time, those are the ones he fulfilled and that he brought forth or that uh, for which he was brought forth to fulfill. And so, very plainly, God sends the apostles from Jerusalem so that it would be crystal clear to the Samaritans, salvation is from the Jews. It's time to get it right. And our encouragement here is this, salvation is exclusive to the person of Jesus Christ. It's very specific. This is why the Holy Spirit didn't come on the believers in Samaria until the apostles came so that it would be crystal clear. This ensured that there wouldn't be a separate church at Samaria. There was one church and the church had people in Jerusalem and the church now had people in Samaria and the church eventually has, his pe has people to the uttermost parts of the earth. But now they're united. Now, the exciting thing about this that's often overlooked by people is that this is a fulfillment of Scripture, that the gospel would come and reunite, essentially, the two kingdoms is something that's actually predicted that we see in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. It says, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, and he's speaking of this coming time of the coming Christ and everything. He says, The people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. And this is a, a beautiful thing that when we realize here are the Samaritans and they are north of, the, of Jerusalem, north of what is Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. And here come Peter and John into town from the south. The faces turn toward them to see, oh, who is this that's coming? And who is it? Well, with their faces turned toward Zion, they see that it's the coming Holy Spirit 
that will unify them, that will bring them together, that will bring great peace. You see how good God is to unite them back together. This northern and southern kingdom, after almost a thousand years of being divided, now united in the church and still uniting more to this very day. Well, the reinforcements come and look at the results of what happened here in in uh, Samaria at the time. I want to point this out to you. There was great joy. There was much joy in that city. In the first century, the concept of joy is described by the theological dictionary of the New Testament this way. Joy is native to God alone. We find it only in God. It comes with virtue and wisdom. But this is impossible only on the presupposition. This is possible only on the presupposition that by way of the Logos, that is the word, God himself is the giver. God is the giver of true joy. True joy comes only from God. And this is a joy that comes with virtue and wisdom. This is a joy indeed that we see taking place here. Luke likes this word joy. Luke uses it quite a bit. We find it uh, in the parable of finding something that is lost, there is much rejoicing. One's name being written in heaven, there is rejoicing. That the coming of the Savior himself, there's rejoicing. At the acts that Jesus did, there's rejoicing. The mood of the people in Luke 18 is one of joy. And it is the mood of the disciples after Jesus ascends into heaven in Luke 24 that they were full of joy. One should not just rejoice. One should rejoice at what God has done. That's true rejoicing. That's true joy. We even see in Acts chapter 5, Luke accounting that indeed they were rejoicing at suffering. They had suffered and they rejoiced at it. Joy accompanies the gospel because in it has come a salvation that transcends every concern of this world. Our greatest problem has been solved in Jesus Christ. We have had the forgiveness of sins. If you've ever had the opportunity to come across a, an automobile accident, and I hope you haven't, but many of us have, and many have seen or have heard accounts of it, when you come across an accident, and you know it's very clear, no one's on the scene yet, you're the first one there, here's debris strewn about the road, you know, cars here and there, and you come up and you immediately assess a situation, what is your first priority? What is the number one thing that you're looking for? You're looking to see if anyone's injured. You're looking to see if anyone needs help. Now there's a mess. And it, you know, if you got just a hint of OCD, you're looking at the debris on the road. You're looking at the cars out of place and the cars are all banged up. And, and it's kind of grating on something there. But nevertheless, something inside you overcomes. It says, no, 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 that's bad, but that's not the concern now. The concern is we find out if anybody's hurt and needs help. Well, indeed, when it comes to the things of life, there are many troubles, there are many trials, there are many cares. And those cares will remain when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. But it is like this. God has come upon the scene of this wreck of sin of human beings, of the sin of this earth and the curses that sin has brought with it and, and everything that we experience. And he has come and he has solved the number one problem. He has solved the problem that caused it all. He has solved the problem of sin that in Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sin. 
Now everything else can get cleaned up later. Just like at the scene of an accident, let's deal with the people and let's make sure they're safe and they're stabilized and let's get them medical assistance. Then we'll deal with cleaning up the road, getting the automobiles out of the way, getting the traffic flowing. And the same is true of our lives. Get this straight first. Get your sins forgiven in the person of Jesus Christ because our encouragement as we've seen today is that this is what God is doing. He is invading the earth with the kingdom of God and he is pushing it forward despite any resistance internal or external and he is bringing it to every single person that will respond whether you're a Samaritan, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're the filthiest, dirtiest, most wretched sinner that has ever lived, the gospel is offered freely to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're already in Christ, you understand this is what you have to take to someone else. This is the power in your hands to go and take it forward and see lives changed and see people moved from death to life and it will bring great joy. You will rejoice together with those that you bring the gospel to, for they will have the joy of forgiven sin. You will have the joy of having witnessed it. There is no greater joy than the gospel of Jesus Christ. No greater thing can come into the life of a human being than this. I want you to see something here something that matters, something that is joyful. In the Old Testament, the most encouraging passages in all of the Old Testament are these passages in which the joy of salvation is brought forward. And we see it a lot in the prophets. As the prophets continually pronounce the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment on Israel for their sins, the judgment of even other nations, from time to time and more and more as the prophets go on, you get these surges of hope these threads of beauty and of restoration. Let me just share just one with you. And I want you to see that this speaks not only of God bringing the nation back into the land, it speaks of something greater he's bringing forth now. This is in Zephaniah chapter 3, starting verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Okay, the daughter of Zion is the people of Israel, that those that have their base in Jerusalem, those that meet God in Jerusalem. It says, Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And listen to this. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This promise is for the coming one, Jesus Christ. This is all fulfilled in him. And it is we who have been united together, gathered together, 
to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up sincere worship to God, having our oppressors, that is our sin, forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name this day that you have made great promises and you are in the business of keeping them. And if our eyes are open, Lord, we'll see you keeping them this very day. Lord, I pray that you'll keep your promises with the preaching of this word today, that you will accomplish in those who hear all that you desire. Let us now again read Acts chapter 8 and think on these things and see that indeed you are making a free offer of the gospel to everyone, that you are building your church even with resistance, and that, Lord, you, are, you can be known and it will bring great joy. Lord, we thank you for this great text. We thank you for all that has been done by your servants. We thank you for the word of God and the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, carry us away now in your grace and in peace to continue to minister as you carry Philip away from one encounter to another to, to bless people with the gospel truth. Now carry us and take us now in peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. It certainly has been to me to be able to study this passage for you. Uh, feel free to give us a call. Uh, I guess uh, send us an email. Let me get through the rest of this here. You can contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com or you can find out more about us at whitethrone.org. And if you're ready to take the next step in your faith, contact us. We can help you find a church near you, a church that will faithfully proclaim the truth, one that you can be involved with and, and be part of this. For God did not design us to be rogue Christians operating on our own, but rather he has called us together for his great glory. God bless you as you go about your day.